You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. That's what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus, the old creation which has been tarnished with sin and death and violence and rebellion is beginning to pass away until one day only the new creation is left, a creation in which there is no sin, death, violence, rebellion, or disease. In that day, there will only be glory and blessing, peace and unity, love and worship forever abounding in every molecule of this new creation will be things that are good and glorious. And even though the new creation has come in the resurrection, we can clearly look around and realize that we live in a way in which that new creation has not fully come. We call this the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. We live still in a world full of sin. The bodies we inhabit are full of sin. They will die. They will get sick and deteriorate. Our relationships will be difficult. We will experience strife. We will live through wars. We will see famines. The world is still broken. And and so the resurrection didn't just immediately eliminate all sadness from the world. But it did inaugurate this movement of God in which he has promised and given us this down payment that everything sad is beginning to come untrue because of the ministry of Jesus. The resurrection changes everything and that it starts that movement. It allows for us to be truly changed people, to have an unshakable hope as we endure life in this world of brokenness. God has given us a promise in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a promise of our future resurrection, a promise of an eternity in which we will join with God in the rest of the eternal seventh day. It's a down payment on future glory to be revealed. And so today, as we begin to take hold of the resurrection as as not only this beautiful miracle that we are in awe of, but this, this practical theology that shapes us as God's people, Let's pray and then think about it a little bit more. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that we live in a world of death and we ask that the resurrection would change us. Would you begin by changing our hearts, filling us with hope and faith, change the way that we live because of the resurrection. Change the way that we worship because of the resurrection. This morning, as we consider the nature of our hearts, would you convict us of sin and comfort us in your grace and your promises? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who is risen. Amen. So the passage that Claire read for us uh, this morning in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is telling a rebellious people that their hearts were made of stone. Right? That's kind of at the core of what he's saying. They have these hearts made of stone. They're, they're lifeless. And this is consistent throughout the scriptures. The poets and the prophets of the Old Testament uh, agree with this sentiment. The hearts of the children of man are full of evils. That's what Solomon says in the Proverbs. Jeremiah says similar things. The psalmists say similar things. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus and the apostles, specifically Paul, agreeing with this doctrine of the heart of stone. 
Jesus knew what was in man. That's what John said as he wrote his gospel, that Jesus knew what was in man. That's a wicked heart. Jesus told Nicodemus that men all needed a rebirth, a new heart to be made new. And when I say heart, the Bible uses the word heart to means something more than just this organ that distributes blood and oxygen throughout our bodies. In the language of the Bible, the heart is the essence of mankind. It's, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. The heart of man reflects the man himself. That's what Solomon says. Like a face is reflected in water, so our hearts reflect who we are. And so, if it's true that our hearts naturally devise evil and desire selfishness and are, are made of stone, that they're, they're, they're full of death, then we have a problem, right? If the heart is the essence of who we are and it's dead and full of evil. From our hearts, we covet and harbor hate. In our hearts, we worship. And we are prone to worship idols and creatures rather than the creator God. Just read Romans 1. In, in our hearts, we love and often our loves are misaligned with the hopes that God has for us. At the root of the human heart is a craving or desire for the good life. That's what all of our hearts want. We want the good life, a, a life marked by security and meaning and satisfaction and blessing and rest from our labor. And apart from finding those things in the eternal promises that we've been given through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what will happen is that we will seek those things in all sorts of avenues and, and means that will pass away. We'll, we'll look for the good life in things that are fleeting. So the evil that our hearts produce is often not so obviously evil as much as it's just a perverted pursuit of this good life. Our hearts seek rest and satisfaction and the good life in things that will die with us. Some things that will maybe even kill us. Things that are less than the glory of God things that can never be what we hope they will be for us. I, I see this in my own heart. I spent this week considering this, and, and what I realized is that in, in the depths of my heart, I'm often convinced of counterfeit versions of the good life, that, that maybe if I have the right stuff that will make me happy and then have the right amount of leisure time to enjoy that stuff, maybe that's the good life. Some of you long for more money, a better job, a relationship you don't yet have, a child you've yet to conceive, a home you can't afford in a neighborhood you don't live in with a climate better than Houston's. You long for better friends and better hobbies. You long to be more successful, more eloquent, more kind, more assertive. You long to be more disciplined and smarter. You long for more accolades and more respect. And even though you would probably never say this even to yourself, you are convinced that if you get those things, you'll be satisfied. And you won't. If you long for anything less than the eternal blessedness of union with Christ, the, the fullness of satisfaction of being in the presence of God, worshiping him at his throne, serving him continually in an eternal home that is free from all evils. Notice I'm describing the heavenly blessings. If you long for anything less than heaven, you will be longing for something that will one day pass away 
and will ultimately corrupt your heart even more. But Satan is a crafty liar. He's a crafty liar. He convinces you that the ways that God has called you to live, like sacrificially, generously, through suffering, that those things aren't good. You've heard him saying, you know what would be good? Replacing that old car. You know what would be good? A better job. Better hobbies, more free time, a better retirement account. God doesn't want you to be happy. If he wanted you to be happy, he wouldn't ask you to give so much. He wouldn't ask you to sacrifice so much. He wouldn't make you endure such suffering. And we're convinced that he's right at times when we hear this. So what do we do? We start creating idols, false gods, or, or exist worship, worship existing ones in order to better meet the needs of our misplaced desires and our disenchanted conceptions of the good life. And we do this because a lot of times what God really wants for us are things that in the present seem like anything but the good life, right? Like sometimes what God calls us to doesn't look at all like the good life. God calls you to sexual chastity, financial generosity, and the peaceful endurance of suffering to a humble life in which you might not ever receive any acclaim. God often calls us to lives marked by delayed gratification over and over and over again until we realize that the gratification we're looking for is not actually going to come to us until the body we currently inhabit is dead. And, and if we look at the history of God's people, we'll see that, that all throughout creation, the history of God's people, they've, they've struggled with this desire for the good life. And, but what we see is that when God's people abided in the promises of God, in, in times where they obeyed his law, where they put their hope in the things that he had promised them, what do we see happening to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? In those seasons where they were putting their hope in the real good life that's found in God. Oh, they had peace from their enemies. They had joy they had national unity. They had flourishing. They had a removal of disease and plagues from their midst. And then when they were rebelled, what happened? They became miserable. In fact, often they became slaves, captives, hungry and destitute. Like us, when we pursue false versions of the good life and become slaves to them. Their hearts, like ours, were deformed because our hearts betray who we are. It orients our behaviors and speech toward those things which we truly treasure. It's why Jesus told people, uh, considering their money, that, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the resurrection is this blessed hope for our hearts. But it's not just a blessed hope for our hearts. The resurrection is not just this thing that, that gives us optimism and hope. It actually is also an exhortation and a rebuke. The resurrection is telling us to stop putting your hope in anything less than the God of the universe. Stop putting your hope in finding joy in anything other than serving him forever, enjoying him forever. The resurrection is a call. It's an invitation to have your mind and heart and life focused on the things of God, divorcing yourself from the love and captivity to the things of this earth so that you can actually take hold of the hope of the glory of God in eternal salvation. What's Paul say? He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's where joy is found. 
In another passage, he considering this, this mindset of having his hope fully set on, on the things that the resurrection gives us, he says that by any means possible, I would obtain the resurrection of the dead. To gain the resurrection of the dead, we first need resurrected hearts with resurrected faith. And God knew this when he saw the people of Israel in Babylonian captivity, which is the context that Ezekiel's writing to. He, and so he sent them this prophet named Ezekiel, and he sent them to say to them that one day he would come to them and gather them up from the nations, sprinkle them with clean water, cleanse them from their sins and their filth, give them new hearts and put his spirit in them so that they could obey him. And he was talking about what was one day going to happen to the people of God through the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus allows us to have our hearts made alive to the beauty of God. It has enabled us to have reoriented desires, enchanted by heavenly and eternal realities. So if God has decided to give his people new hearts, a good question to ask is why did he decide to do that? And the answer might be a bit surprising to you. The reason, the primary reason given in Ezekiel chapter 36 is not because he loves his people, not for their good, it's for his glory. Hear this, verses 22 through 27. It says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God had a people who were his in name and in relationship, but they were so full of rebellion, so full of wickedness and idolatry and blasphemy that they brought reproach upon the great and awesome name of God. And so that should be a warning for us as a church that we bear the name of Christ. Let us not defame his name by walking apart from him. But, but God, what he could have done is he could have said, Israel, you've blown it. I'm going to abandon you altogether. I'll find a different people. But he had made a promise to them. He made a promise to them in the days of Abraham to be their God. And he is a God who always keeps his promises. So instead of abandoning them, he decided to rescue them. He would transform them into the kinds of people who would make much of him, be worthy of his holy name. And he knew this would be work that he would have to do. And so he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, God knows our hearts and our weakness. And so he does the work of changing us on our behalf. Because otherwise, we would never be changed 
if God didn't do it. So he does the work. He, he gives new hearts through resurrection. He sprinkles us clean. He removes our filth and our sin. He changes our desires so that we go from wanting to run from him to wanting to run to him and obeying him. And so why did he do this? Well, the second reason is because he loves us. First, he, he's done it for his glory, for the sake of his name. And second, because he loves us. He loved the broken world so much that he sent his only son to do the, the work of making us new. That's John 3.16. It's clear that God's love for us compelled him to act. Christ, the beloved son of God, was crushed as a sinner with a hardened heart so that sinners with hardened hearts could be welcomed as beloved sons of God. That's a, a beautiful reality. Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. The apostle Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. See, having a new heart means that you're not only able to take hold of the good life forever that, that is God's will, but, but you do so as a son of God, an heir to all of God's blessings. These, these passages talk about God's spirit coming into his people. The, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead that we, we saw last week has come into our hearts through faith. God's spirit legitimizes us as sons of God. For if we are, are indwelt by the spirit of God, then who can say we are not his sons, his daughters, his children? It legitimizes us. It transforms us into lovers of God. It establishes us as those who have been made new through the power of God. And so our new hearts with new spirits will begin to orient our whole being toward the good life of God's heavenly kingdom. This is the work of God in his people, that he's changing us fully, that he's resurrecting us from death into new life. And so while at a fundamental level, we receive this new birth through faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus by the grace of God, which is true. Like we receive the blessings of God through faith, right? It is by grace through faith. God gives us in, in Ezekiel kind of a, a threefold plan for our redemption. Um, it, he, he says, you're, you're gonna be saved by grace through faith, but this is what that's going to look like. And I think that's helpful for us. The first thing that God does is he gathers his people and takes them out of the nations of the world. So for Ezekiel, he was talking about a future reality for Israel. And it's easy to think that this is just about a, a national uh, recovery from exile in Babylon. That it's about being brought out of exile and established again in, in the promised land of Israel. But it's more about God taking them out of this world of sin and idolatry and false religion and establishing them in faithfulness to him. God resurrects our hearts by drawing us out of the world of sin, the world that's full of evils, the world that is full of despair and death, and being in love with it, he draws us out of our love with the world and he sets us free from that bondage. 
He sets us free from bondage to the things of the world. And he makes our hearts new by freeing us from our former loves and commitments to things that won't provide us the good life. Worship of things that are are not him. And so he draws us out of that. The second thing God does in Ezekiel 36, he says he's going to sprinkle his people with clean water. This is, one, it's a metaphor about God's cleansing of our hearts from sin, forgiving us of our debts. But the beauty of this passage is that what we see now in the realities of the new covenant given in Christ is that God didn't just give us this metaphor of sprinkling our hearts with clean water, but he gave us a physical expression of this promise in baptism, that this is what's happening in baptism. In your baptism, God cleansed you out of wickedness. He cleansed you from your sin through the shed blood of Jesus. You are clean, having been sprinkled with clean water. The third thing that it says is that he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. So having drawn us out of love with the world, out of slavery from sin and death, having sprinkled us and washed us, made us pure and and lovely, he makes us new. He gives us a new heart, a new spirit. We need these new hearts because otherwise we would never be changed. We need new hearts to make us into a changed people who love God and who have faith in him. If you're a Christian, what has happened is that God has taken your old heart, your old essence that made you who you were, and he's thrown it out. He's rid you of it altogether, and he has replaced it with a new heart that is aligned with his love a new heart that believes in his promises, a new heart which hopes in his salvation and finds rest in his presence. His spirit is within you, directing your heart back toward him day after day. So to what end has God given us new hearts? He's he's given us new hearts for his glory and in love for us. We've seen how he does that, but to what end? What's the purpose? If we kept reading in Ezekiel 36, like Claire did, this is what we would glean. These are, these are not only reasons that God gives us that he, he has saved us, but we should be examining ourselves to see if they're true of us. So, so Ezekiel gives us these, these things that God has given us a new heart for, and we should say, okay, this is why God has saved me. He's for these things, but also hear these things and, and examine yourself and see if they exist within you. God has given us new hearts so that we can enjoy him. He says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. There's this expectation of joyful relationship. God has given us new hearts so that we can bear fruit for his kingdom and for his glory. There's all this talk about the the land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. He's given us new hearts so that we can bear fruit for his kingdom and for his glory. He's given us new hearts so that we will recognize his salvation and his love toward us. One of the responses of God's people receiving new hearts in this promise given to Ezekiel is that they begin to hate the old versions of themselves. They despise their former sins and idolatry. Part of this is God's given you a new heart so that you can look on who you were before and find so much pleasure in what God has brought you into. God has given us new hearts so that the world around us will know who God is. 
See, as we are a changed, fruit-bearing, and holy people, it is then that God will say, they will know that I am the Lord. The nations will know that God is the Lord as his people are changed by his power and by his grace, proclaiming his goodness, despising their former selves. God has given us new hearts for his glory. I wanna end by considering Luke's account of the resurrection. In, in this account of the resurrection, the angel at the tomb who greets the disciples coming to look for the body of Jesus, he asks this question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And I love this statement because it gets at something that I want us as Christians to take hold of. And if you're not a Christian in the room, I want you to take hold of this. The present world is like a tomb. It is on the way to death. It is full of things of death and our bodies are included in that. It's a world full of sin and brokenness. And maybe right now your heart is finding satisfaction in the things of the world. And, and is in that way a tomb. It, maybe your heart is like a tomb. Maybe you and your friends and your colleagues gather around in the graveyard after work to enjoy all of this dying that the world has to offer to find some peace and satisfaction in it. But what happens when you encounter the gospel of God, when you put your hope in Jesus Christ and, and he puts his spirit within you. What happens is that your friends and your neighbors and your family and even your own body will keep going back to the tomb that used to be your heart and they will look for you there, hoping that you will join them in the old exercises and rituals of death. And they won't find you. They won't find you there. The spirit of God and the angels, when they look for you in the old tomb of your former heart, will say to them, sometimes subtly and sometimes shouting, quit looking for him here. Quit looking for her here. Don't you know she isn't dead anymore? She's risen. She's alive and she doesn't dwell anymore in this tomb. You're looking in the wrong place. You're looking for the, in the wrong place for Cole. He's not here anymore. And sometimes we'll still look for ourselves there because our flesh is, is still rotting. It's still full of sin. And, and, that, and one day that dance too will be over when our bodies too are resurrected, which we'll talk about next week. But, but we ought to be convicted and worried if people look for us in the tomb and find us there. If you look for me in the tomb of materialism or misplaced sexual desires or the pursuit of wealth as happiness or any other counterfeit version of the good life, woe to me. I, I need to repent and get out of the tomb and get back into the garden. Paul continually calls his disciples to set their mind on the things that are above, to set their hearts and hopes on heavenly things. He does that because if you keep your heart and, and your mind set on, on, on the things of the earth, then what's going to happen is that your heart is going to fall in love with the things of death again. 
But if you set your gaze on the risen Lord seated at the right hand of God in the eternity that he is preparing a place for you in, we will, where we will join him forever, then everything about your life will begin to change. Everything about the way you live will change as you consider the resurrected eternity that you will be worshiping in. Because in eternity, the scriptures tell us that what we will be doing is worshiping God forever, serving at his throne forever, enjoying his presence forever. And if God has designed that for all of eternity and the most beautiful version of all creations, that that's what his people will be doing, we ought to start doing it now. Because anything less is a waste of time. Anything less is a counterfeit version of the good life. Anything less is a graveyard activity. And so we who have resurrected hearts ought not to do them because we are no longer a people of the graveyard. We are a people of the garden. Let's pray and let's feast at the table together.